Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Outkick 360 is back across the Outkick network, and we're not leaving. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine alongside Chad Withrow. I'm Jonathan Hutton, debuting the new studio here at 6th and Peabody, where Outkick and Outkick 360 will be. Around us, a new set, and behind us, building out a studio uh, with big announcements to come around everything we're going to be doing starting in football season starting next month. We're thrilled about it. Love to be partnered with 6th and Peabody, Yeehaw Beer, and Old Smoky Moonshine. Chad, we could not be happier about it. This is our studio space, and we're going to be here each and every day with 6th and Peabody. Hutton, I didn't think it was possible, but this studio space and this background makes you even more beautiful than you already were here. even before, uh, which is really <laughs> difficult to accomplish, but that's what happens when you get this great venue that we're at at 6th and Peabody with Old Smokey and Yeehaw. We've had a great relationship with them for years. Again, more announcements will be coming very soon uh, with our, our partnership with, with Old Smokey and Yeehaw Beer. But great backdrop, uh, beautiful yep. surrounding. We've got the, what is this, Lance? Exposed Barnwood, I think is what you would call this. I feel like almost like we're in uh, the basement of a New England coastal town's uh, home, a cottage, <laughs> if you would. Like, we're going to step right out of here and go to the Atlantic Ocean in Maine. Uh, that's where we're going to go next. But we're in downtown Nashville, and we're in a terrific spot. And now you can come see us as we broadcast live every day. So we're excited about this move in this studio and great things to come, Hutton. Well, we need, we need one of those singing bass uh, you know, that sold uh, out from Christmas that one year. Billy Big Mouth Bass, <laughs> yes. you're talking about? We yes, need that I'm on very the, familiar with We those. need that on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> to really, yeah, to, to, to just close out the motif I, a little bit more. I must also say, about two hours ago, they brought in cold Yeehaw beer over my shoulder and put it on display. Now, this, this will be back here uh, for as long as they want it back there, but it's still cold. So if we want to stone cold some of these later... Now's the time. You know, in our last studio, uh, we closed out our first show with a bit of a toast. I think if it's okay with you, I think all of us in we this make the room <laughs> need to do the same, right? We can do that. They brought in cold beer for us. I think that's a signal that we need to drink during the show, and we're going to do that to close out today's show, hopefully, if Hutton approves. Oh, I completely approve. Good, and, good. Uh, Yeehaw will as well. So will Old Smoky, uh, Moonshine. And this is the debut of something big through OutKick and a partnership with 6th and Peabody. Uh, just know from broadcast to podcast, we're going to have you covered throughout the entire football season, and we are ready to go. Hit us up on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Uh, and on YouTube, you can search us out and just subscribe to the channel, OutKick360, automatically just by subscribing. You're entered to win 
a Hertz Audison and Sony prize pack. Uh, that comes with just subscribing to the channel. Uh, big news, we'll start with Peyton Manning being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame last night, making it official, had the gold jacket ceremony on Friday, which is really cool. Uh, and then the speech last night uh, from Canton where it, it, he hit all the right tones. He thanked everyone he could within the time frame. The speech was rushed, his pace was rushed, but Peyton was Peyton. And uh, he was funny at times, serious at times. It was really good, but it goes back to what I said, Chad, last week. I wish they would stop putting a time limit or trying to stress the time limit. They ended up being the, the, the crux and the, the joke of the entire speech for him, but you could tell his pace was rushed. And I felt like it could have, it, while it was great, it could have been even better if they didn't tell Peyton Manning he had to keep it to six to eight minutes. Yeah, six to eight minutes, and I think the speech ended up running, what, 15 minutes in, in total? Um, it, it, was, it was great. It was exactly what I expected in terms of how uh, good of a job he was going to do with it and how prepared he was going to be. It was also an amazing pep talk for football, not just Peyton yeah. Manning and his career and the thank yous and all of that, which he didn't go into depth with a lot of the thank yous because he basically referenced his retirement speech and said, I went through all this before. I don't have a lot of time. So everything I said and everyone I think then, I'm thinking now as well for being a part of me getting to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I thought overall, though, that the closing of it was, is what's going to be played for years to come. I mean, you could put that as the soundtrack to a future NFL commercial about the legacy of football and how it's important for everyone that's such a big part of it to protect it, to nurture it, and to move it forward. Not sit still, but move the game forward. All the challenges the sport has faced recently with safety concerns, social justice issues, everything else. And the way he encapsulated that speech in the end, I saw David Reed tweet out that, you know, Peyton Manning for NFL commissioner. I thought the same thing. I thought to myself, boy, it would be really cool if this guy was the commissioner of the NFL one day, hearing him talk about the game that he loves so much. That's going to be the big takeaway for me is that this ended up being a great State of the Union address of the National Football League and football as a sport moving forward. I, I thought it was terrific. It was, it was good. Um, you know, he, he said you know, he wanted to set up things for generations to come. He, he mentioned the fans as well being a big part of that. So whether you're watching the sport or you're a kid uh, that, that's wanting to play flag football that leads to tackle football, his, his speech and tone at the end was about ensuring that the sport and the legacy that he leaves behind for the sport, that his family, quite frankly, has left behind, uh, is, is something that will endure for not just the next generation, but for generations to come. I thought, I thought it, was, it was great, and he hit the right tones. I, I, Brady being there was really cool. Brady being booed was perfect, uh, with, and his reaction was as well. Um, yeah, I just felt like it was a, it was a tad bit rushed the whole time he was thinking about the timing. And there was a lot of timing elements to his speech. You know, he wanted to time up the hurry, hurry at the beginning. It was a little bit delayed. I don't know. I just, I, I, I hate whenever guys that go into the Hall of Fame feel like they have to rush through a speech and can't thank everybody and instead have to reference a letter that they wrote years ago whenever he retired, five years ago. This guy, we're talking about a guy who, who when presented to the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee, you, you say his name and you sit down. It's that simple. That guy deserves to think as many people as he wants to uh, over the course of his career. He thanked the Colts. He thanked the Broncos. And as he was saying Denver Broncos, I could not help but think that could have been the Tennessee Titans. 
that he was thinking on stage last night in Canton, Ohio, and that this was one of the three visits that he took. He visited the Miami Dolphins, the Tennessee Titans, and the Denver Broncos, and ultimately fell in love with Denver. John Elway had a, a big part of that, but also what Denver and the Broncos could offer. They weren't a good football team, but I think the vision was much better at, and the timing much better uh, for him in Denver than it was in Tennessee. But I, I did think about what could have been because the induction video goes through the, the dynamic of going to Tennessee and being the number one overall pick. And as, as you think back, you could think, well, there's, there's something cool that could have played out had he gone back to Tennessee, right? And that's what we were talking about, about back in 2012. Absolutely. And uh, I think the video vignettes they put together for each yeah. Hall of Fame inductee, they're really well done. And the one with Peyton was, was great also. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it was definitely rushed. But I think because it was rushed, Hutton, and I, I, I wish he would have had, you know, 45 minutes to speak, but it, it had um, – there was something a little bit more powerful about it with his pacing, with how he was addressing everyone. You know, it felt like a historic speech happening because it had to be so organized yeah. and contained. And I think the way it was written in the end really led to that. Uh, the Tom Brady thing was perfect, and Brady's reaction of smiling and kind of getting, getting the people booing even louder – as it was going on, was great. Um, I, I really liked uh, Adam. I, I tweeted something about, uh, I said, if you don't like Peyton Manning, you don't like football at, at this point because Peyton Manning is football. That guy yeah. loves football as much or more than anyone. He is such an ambassador for the game. And uh, Adam Sparks, who now covers the University of Tennessee uh, in Knoxville, tweeted, and he was there and said, when Charles Woodson later on said, stand up if you respect me, and he said the only, some of the only people that didn't stand were the 30 to 40 Tennessee fans <laughs> in attendance. And I'm thinking to myself, how perfect it is that Peyton Manning, who got hosed out of a Heisman with Charles Woodson, but yet Charles Woodson goes on to this Hall of Fame career, and they enter on the same night. And there's Tennessee fans there to give one last show of disrespect for Charles Woodson. And not really disrespect for Charles Woodson as much as a respect to Peyton Manning, mm -hmm. who everyone, they thought, should have won the Heisman that year. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, I, I get why you don't want everyone speaking for an hour, but I'm with you. There's certain people you want to manipulate the rules a little bit for and say, okay, Peyton Manning can entertain us for an hour with a speech, and everyone would be fine with that. There's other speeches that go on and on a little bit, and you want sure. them to wrap up after 10 or 15 minutes. Well, he made the but joke. But with Peyton know, Manning, that was never going to be the Ray case. Ray Lewis's speech just ended. You know, right. that, that was a great line to throw in there because that was one that went on for a while. But Ray Lewis deserves to be able to stand up there and with the football career that he had and say what he wants to say. Um, uh, and the same goes for Peyton. Uh, the, the whole weekend was really good. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I, just, the, just the, the, the way I felt that Peyton was sped up a bit it left me wanting more from the speech uh, that was perfectly written and had the perfect tone. And Chad's right. It was, a, uh, it was a thank you to football, but also a legacy that he wants to leave behind for the sport moving forward uh, on how to build off of what they're doing and ensuring that football's here to stay. Um, so congrats to Peyton. Congrats. And I thought Archie was awesome, too, in the video. Archie was great. Uh, Peyton's daughter, Mosley, yeah. crying when he was talking about his kids, I thought was really sweet and a, a nice moment. Um, John Lynch, I was praying for someone to bring him water the entire time. I watched all of John Lynch's speech. 
And it was one of those where you could tell he was dry mouthed on the side. You could almost hear his mouth catching because he needed to drink something because he was nervous and his mouth got really dry. His speech was great. But the whole time I'm thinking, please, someone run out some water to him. It would help so much. But all in all, uh, Hutton, we've been there before. It's a very well-run, well-organized event with the hall and everything they do throughout the weekend. Did you see the photo of, I think the Colts tweeted this out, of, of Brady and Manning? And, he said, and the, the Colts tweeted out something like uh, Manning meeting some of, some of his fans after the Hall of Fame induction, and it's just him and Brady standing there. You see the sweat? Brady, uh, Brady's standing there looking perfect. There it is. Look at this. Look at the sweat on oh, Peyton's shirt. Goodness. That's how hot it is. I remember that being a big issue a couple of years ago. Mawai's, Kevin Mawai's Pro Football Hall of Fame party was inside the actual hall. So it was perfect. I mean, air conditioned. But there were others that we saw walking back to the hotel after Mawai's party that would have like a tent or something set up or a venue. And it is just scorching hot at night with not much air moving around. And you might be on pavement, too, yeah, in that, some of these yeah. setups. That makes it even yeah. worse. So and you saw the, the sweat is drenched in uh, – Peyton's drenched, and, of course, Brady looks like a, a model, like he, like he showered before he took the photo. Brady had, like, some sort of breathable llama fabric <laughs> that he had with his shirt where he, it's impossible to sweat. Yeah. Uh, he probably invented it. He probably sells it on a website somewhere uh, with Giselle. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the sweaters out there, Hutton. I'm not talking about wearing a sweater. I'm talking about people who sweat a lot because I'm one of these Lance Leaves – Pumping his fist. He, he agrees. We had some pictures uh, taken, some photos. This a little morning. bit of a photo shoot this morning. And we're outside, and that sun comes out, and it's humid. And it's like a faucet. The moment you start sweating, and I'm one of these people, it's almost impossible <laughs> to stop. If I don't start sweating, I'm going to be fine. But once you get a good lather going in the heat, it's just, it's just there. And it's not like pouring out sweat. It's just, it's just my head of is going to be wet <laughs> for a long period of time. So I sympathize with Bruce Pearl, who's another famous sweater. Peyton Manning in that sweaty photo. Lance Lee, who's still sweating right now, even though we're in a room that's 65 degrees <laughs> in this venue. I, I'm sympathetic for all these people who can't stop sweating. David Reed, doesn't, David Reed doesn't know what it feels like to not sweat. I mean, he, um, he lives in condensation. David Reed, though, covers it up really well. Like, he never looks wet. He never looks sweaty. Even though I know that he's sweating and he's uncomfortable, I never look at him and think, man, you look really uncomfortable. We were out here at Old Smoky Yeehaw for an event uh, recently. I was playing Jacob Swanson in ping pong. You would have thought I just ran the Boston Marathon by the time I was done because of the heat and the sweat. And then once you turn that faucet on, there's no shutting that faucet off. You're going to be sweating the rest of the time. And, uh, that's, Are you comfortable that's what now? Was doing. Are you comfortable now? I'm very comfortable sitting next to you right now, okay. Hutton, in, in this room. I oh. mean, you would know. Like, if I was sweating, oh, yeah. you would see it. It wouldn't stop. So, uh, as a part of the new studio, we have some new camera angles, and David Reed is going to be a part of this as well as the uh, director of show operations. There is the beautiful David Reed uh, over a, here. Look how close we are. See that? Look. And we, we can, we can also, over the time, you'll, you'll be able to see the build out over the next couple of weeks of the studio itself through this camera. Uh, going to be really cool. I don't, we don't have a camera on you guys anymore, do we? Lance? Ya oh, there we go. There's uh, Lance and Jacob uh, There's making Jacob's it happen. Jacob's hand. Yeah, Jakob Swanson. Uh, shout out to Sleepy Danny and Becca <laughs> Risley uh, for making it happen uh, down the hall, as we like to say, at the Outkick uh, Studios. 
Uh, and again, we're thrilled to be here. We're going to hit some other headlines when we come back, including uh, the legendary Bobby Bowden, uh, who passed away over the weekend at the age of 91. We'll describe his legacy. The Grand Prix, right here in downtown the Nashville. The Grand Prix. Yes, it was so grand. Very grand. We will we'll get into uh, takeaways there of big events. We have the uh, Tennessee Power Hour that comes up at noon central, 1 eastern. PK is going to check in live from Titans training camp. We're also going to talk balls, Commodores, and much more that hour. Uh, and some headlines, including the Olympics, which have wrapped up in Tokyo. Uh, and the United States took over. Yeah, we do what we they do. They took over. We dominated uh, in the end. That's what happened. And the U.S. women made history uh, over the weekend as well. We'll discuss all that and more straight ahead on OutKick 360. Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network live from the 6th and Peabody studio with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine with Chad Withrow. I'm Jonathan Hutton, Lance Lee, Jakob Swanson making the show happen. David Reed is the chairman of the board. Ellie Sylvia, our production assistant, flat out getting it done. Uh, we'll check in with Paul Koharski coming up in about an hour live from Titans training camp. Over the weekend, the sad news of Bobby Bowden legendary Florida State football coach passing away of pancreatic cancer at the age of 91. Second all-time winningest coach in Division I history. A 56-year coaching career that began in 1954 as an assistant at Howard College, which is now Samford. And he also played there. 34 years as the head coach at Florida State. And that's, I mean, if you grew up in the 90s, like Chad and I did, you know Bobby Bowden from Florida State. He was a fabric of college football and the fabric of uh, the nostalgia. Going back to our conversation last week, Chad, the nostalgia of college football, the, the state championship of Florida with Florida State, Florida, and Miami facing each other, the fact that he was known as the, the guy who would take on anyone, anytime across America, and he kind of walked into that on accident because he inherited a really tough schedule. Uh, that included Ohio State uh, and Nebraska and others. But he just stuck with it and, and kept doing that schedule. And he became known as a head coach that would go on the road and win. And that's what Florida State did. He recruited so well. And uh, that, southern, that, that Southern quality, uh, there, was a, there was just a great feeling you had when Bobby Bowden was on the TV screen and you were hearing him say daggum or whatever it might be. Uh, he was someone you wanted to play for. When things like this happen and you start to get, you know, it's uh, it's not a tragedy when someone 91 years right. old passes away, but when, when you have that generation of coaches in any sport that pass away, it feels like part of the soul of the sport dies a little bit. And that's the way I felt with, with Bobby Bowden. It, it feels like the soul of Southern college football and, and, and national college football died a little bit with the passing of Bobby Bowden. Because you mentioned about that Southern charm that he had. You know, he had breakfast with Bobby on Sunday mornings after church. He would have breakfast with media members to start his week. Where coaches now were going right back into the office on Sunday morning to watch game film, he would go to church and then have a breakfast at a local Tallahassee hotel with local media members to catch them up on the week and recap the game and have that relationship with them. Such a different guy. You know, if he was coaching now, uh, it, there's not a lot of people like him. Not right. to say there's I mean, not a lot of good people. He was people. 80, right? Yeah, and I'm not trying to say there's no good people in college. No, I know, football. I know what He's you're a saying. great person, but that sort of personality 
that southern fried presence that he had at all times is very different. And the success, 15 straight years they finished the top five from 87 to 2001. The biggest streak right now of active coaches is Dabo Sweeney at six. Nick Saban had five. That's his longest streak at any point in his career. 15 straight years, top five finishes. Now, that's two national titles. Mm -hmm. you know, that's not Saban-esque. The last in 99. Right. From a national championship standpoint, 93 and 99 were his two they titles. They went back-to-back because -back he played Tennessee lost in 98. With, yep, lost with uh, Marcus Altson, uh, yeah. the backup quarterback against Tennessee in 98. Beat Mike Vick in Virginia Tech in 1999 for a national title. Just greatness at a program that really before he got there, they were an also-ran in college oh, yeah. football. They, they were nothing when Bobby Bowden took that job. Won a lot at what is now Samford, won at West Virginia, took that Florida State job, pretty quickly transformed them into a national power. Mentioned those 15 straight years in the top five. But more than anything else, great guy, great legacy he leaves behind with his family. But it's a part of that soul of the sport that you're not going to get back when characters like Bobby Bowden pass. That really makes me sad just for the sport of college football because he's truly one of a kind. A couple of things that come to mind for me with, with Bowden. I, I remember distinctly late 90s, and really throughout his career, he was known for running up the score. And it went back to, I and Chad, you may know the exact opponent. I think this was when he was at West Virginia. And they were playing Pittsburgh. And they were up big, like 34 to 6 at halftime. And he came out in the second half and sat on the football, where he just turned around and handed it off. Pittsburgh ends up scoring 36 points in the second half, and they win by one. And Bowden, went, would, in a lot of his speaking engagements, he would tell the story about how that's the only time that his wife cried after a loss was whenever he turned around and sat on the lead at halftime, and he vowed he would never do it again. So if he was up 34-6, to six, he was going to try to hang 80 on you by the end of the game from then on. And so whenever he was accused of running up the score, his, his response was, yeah, you're right, I'm trying to do that. And at the time, that was, not, that, that was frowned upon. I think uh, coaches now are more lenient, fans especially are more lenient in that regard nowadays. Uh, because of some of the offenses and how it's run and gun and it's throw a 30, 40-yard pass. In the era we're talking about, you were supposed to turn around and hand off and then what would be a gentleman's agreement. That was the era he was coming out of and, yeah. and the new era that he started, really, in regards to the scoreboard. And then uh, I, you know, he started the, the Florida, Florida State-Miami state championship simply because he was willing to play everyone. And this was before Florida got really good. Miami had been great, and Florida State was the up-and-comer, and they inherited a schedule. This was uh, in 1981, and he inherited a schedule that was already set for 1986. Nebraska, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Pittsburgh, LSU were all on the schedule. And they got through that season. I think they had a winning uh, – they, they got through that road stretch of uh, three and two. Those were all road games. And he decided he would just continue to build like that with some of the non-conference opponents, which at the time you weren't seeing. And that built up Florida State quick because players wanted to come play for him. They wanted to have that swagger. He brought that swagger. He was willing to go in the locker room and say, you guys are playing so great, I don't need to say a word. In fact, I should say less than what I've already said and would just leave the locker room. Um, I don't know. I, there's a southern charm and a quality about him that, 
that leaves a, and left a lasting impression. And I think when you have a guy with a personality like Bobby Bowden that's so big and so different compared to today's sports, sometimes getting lost in the shuffle is just how great of a football coach that person was. And Bobby Bowden was a terrific football coach, not just as a program build, builder, as a character builder. Um, he was a great technical football coach. I mean, his teams are always going to go down as being violent, hard-playing defenses – uh, cutting edge at times offense, multiple offenses that could do a lot of different things. And um, he would take chances. You know, he would do some things very differently yeah. at, at, at odd times. Uh, there was the, the Puntarooski play against Clemson in 1988 where they go to Death Valley and win because of a, a, a fake fumble punt that they end up scoring a touchdown on. There were those random trick plays that he would throw in at times uh, that I thought was so great. Something else that I loved about Bobby Bowden was his sheer honesty about everything, and he didn't apologize for who he was. And we're always going to remember Bobby Bowden as this great family man, a man of faith, uh, great to his players, truly loved them and cared about them even after football. But um, he also knew how to win, and he knew that at times you don't treat your team the same based on their production and how good they are. Uh, he had the funny line about Sebastian Janikowski, I think before they played Tennessee in the national championship game, uh, that he missed curfew and that he had different rules for foreign-born players. <laughs> was the reason that he wasn't – he said, oh, you've got a hard and fast rule about you miss curfew, you miss the game or miss the half. And he said, oh, well, I've got different rules for my foreign-born players. <laughs> and um, I mean, he, would, you know, he would not hide the fact that there would be different rules at times for star players or their background. I mean, you, you had to do that. Uh, with a team, and I think that he was one of the few that were very honest about that, even if doing so in a joking way. And the, the, the sport loses a little bit with the loss of, of Bobby Bowden. We should also point out the sod cemetery that sits outside their stadium that still happens to this day, where you go on the road and win, and they're bringing back a piece of the turf that they would then plant inside of this sod cemetery uh, right next to the stadium. Uh, and and, and I, I believe it was Miami in the 90s where he, he opened that was the first time he admitted, like, yeah, this is a sod game. We're, we're coming down there. To, <laughs> we're bringing back their turf. Uh, I don't know. There's a swagger and a mentality about that that I love and the fact that they still do it today, uh, even though um, FSU's on some hard times. Uh, you think about the era we're discussing for Florida State and how we perceive Florida State football to be right now. Uh, two totally different directions for that program. Um, and, you know, in a way, it's very similar to Tennessee, where we're discussing the 1998 national championship where Tennessee faced Florida State, uh, where Tennessee won. Florida State wins the title in 99, and that's still the era that everyone refers to for both programs. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jimbo Fisher, and then, you know, it just has it worked out with Jimbo Fisher, obviously, after right. Bobby Bowden, but... Willie Taggart was a disastrous hire, yep. turned out. And I think a lot of people watching this have had to think for a second, who even is the Florida State head coach right now? It's Mike Norvell, who they hired from Memphis, who's obviously very early in his tenure. Uh, but the fact that you're sitting there having to think for a second about who is the Florida State head football coach shows how far they've fallen since Bobby Bowden had 15 straight years of finishing in the top five in the 80s on into the early 2000s. R.I.P. to the legendary Bobby Bowden. 
Um, Chad, you were keeping an eye on the medal count as the Olympics wrapped up over the weekend. The United States, they, they take home gold in that category. And it's a big part to do with the women of the United States once again. Making history. Basketball, winning the gold. And this is all women's sports I'm talking about right now. Basketball, water polo, winning a third straight gold medal. Women's volleyball, which surprised me, first ever gold medal in team women's volleyball for the United States as they take home the gold also. They catch China and pass them on the final day in gold medals. 39, 39 to 38, U.S. over China in golds easily winning the overall medal count by, I think, 25 medals uh, over China. So this is one of the reasons we love the Olympics, national pride and the nationalism part of it. And uh, in the United States, we like to think of ourselves as victors. And uh, that's what they were once again. So kudos to Team USA for coming out on top. Men win gold, and I want to hit on the men's basketball team briefly moment in, momentarily. But first, the, the women with Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi uh, winning their fifth. And when you go back to how many days it's been since they last lost at the Olympics, it's, it's nearly 11,000 days. They haven't lost since the 92 Olympics. Um, that's crazy to think about. Even with some of the upsets that take place, the U.S. men taking on uh, France to, to tip off the Olympic Games this year, they still win gold. And we think about the gold medal, not about the loss, uh, but how dominant the U.S. women's basketball team have been. Six of the 12 players on this women's team this year were not alive the last time that they lost a game at the Olympics. That's nuts. I mean, that, that's crazy to think about. And uh, the men win as well in a tight game against France, uh, but ultimately Durant hit some free throws down the stretch. You know, it was uh, – and I, I watched all of that gold medal game uh, late Friday night with the U.S. men. It really was never in that much of a question the whole time. You know, they were up uh, at halftime. They were up the entire – so they would get the lead to 13 or 14, and then France would get it to six, five or six. Yeah. Then they'd push it back out. So they always had at least a little bit of a, a half an arm's length ahead on, on France. I would like to say this about Team USA basketball, though. Great job turning it on when it mattered. I mean, Kevin Durant couldn't do anything in the prelims and even in pool play at times and really turned it on and led this team. He's the all-time leading scorer for USA basketball, should be commended for that. I still think Greg Popovich, even after winning the gold medal, probably not the right fit uh, to lead Team USA into the next Olympics because of some of the hiccups early on. But – once they lost to France, we said this the next day on the show, none of it matters if you go out and prove yourself and win gold. That's exactly what they did. And I'm watching that game, Hutton. This is not some pitter-patter foot-type game. They're, they're not taking anything lightly in this game. That was a hard-played game by both teams. This was not, you know, I think people want to label, you know, NBA players at times as soft or they don't go all out. I didn't get any of that. That was like a high-end March Madness NCAA tournament game from the tip. Both teams played extremely intense defense. Both teams played hard. France is a team that really plays hard, and I know Team USA, in their interviews post-game, they said that. And they were constantly coming back for that reason. But I commend Team USA for battling through some adversity and still finding a way to come out I, with the gold. I can't help but think what would have happened to this team in a non-COVID year. And, and – Certainly more players would have been a part of this group, at least I would think so. Uh, and, and 
everyone that's watched the show knows I'm thrilled for the players who, who didn't point to load management and wanted to go play in Tokyo. But also for the other... So look what Gobert meant to France as I'm watching them play, Chad. And I, I thought to myself, Luca for Slovenia and what he meant to that team. What other teams lacked in this tournament, just due to the, the COVID situations or load management in the NBA, not having the full uh, stable of players. Um, you know, think about Canada, for instance, and the players they could pull from. Giannis or Ayton, DeAndre Ayton's another one. What, what the tournament could have been like in a non-COVID year, I do feel like there's a little, there's a little piece missing, even though Team USA took home gold. It's going to get harder yes. for Team USA if, this is a big if, because those other teams, you're right, those other countries are going to have other players step in and be a part of their national teams. If the best American players continue to sit out, it's going to be an issue. If and when, just like in 2008, just like in 1992, which now totally different era because the rest of the world was much worse then, but in 2008 when the U.S. team decided all of our good players are going to play, and we're going to take it seriously, they roll, and they dominate. If that happens again, I still contend that Team USA will win easily and win the gold easily, even in a year where they didn't have some of their best players. They decided to opt out and not participate for Team USA. They still go on and win the gold. So, Hutton, you're right. When these other countries have players step up and play, it's not going to be as easy, and it wasn't easy for Team USA either. This was a, a no, hard-fought yeah. way to the gold medal exactly. after losing to France to start full play and then winning by five in the gold medal game. I want the best players in the United States, when invited, to play. Period. It's that simple. It is an honor and a privilege to play for your country. When invited, if you medically can do it, you should do it. And I hope that Team USA takes that approach. Kevin Durant is taking that approach. It's not that Kevin Durant's always 100% when the Olympics roll around or, or international competitions, but he wants to represent his country. And because of that, he's the all-time leading scorer for America. Coming up, Deshaun Watson reported to Texans training camp. And then the Texans tried to trade Deshaun Watson. Turns out that the other teams around the league aren't willing to pay the price that the Texans are asking for, for their top five quarterback in the league. I mean, he's a star talent with some legal issues. And on top of that, every team in the league knows he doesn't want to be a Houston Texan anymore. So they're not willing to pay the price, a steep price, that's been reported upwards of five picks. So what's plan B for Houston? Plan B is they play him. Or at least that's what is out there right now. Can the Texans actually play Deshaun Watson and get away with what would be the optics of how that would look? Because there are many layers to that answer. We'll discuss it next on Outkick 360. Outkick 360 across the Outkick network inside the 6th and Peabody studio with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. With Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Chad, the headline today in Houston is if Deshaun Watson is actually going to play for the Houston Texans in 2021. John McClain, who comes on this show, longtime reporter for the Houston Chronicle, TexasSportsNation.com, longtime friend, um, covered the league for over 40 years. He knows that franchise. He says absolutely not. He cannot play for the Houston Texans. 
Charles Robinson reports with uh, Yahoo Sports today that the Texans have, quote, have not given up on Watson playing for the Texans in 2021. Uh, here's what he adds in. They're not taking low ball offers. This is why they are not being overly communicative with, with teams. Barring a strong offer, Texans brass will try to get him back into the fold before the season begins. There's a couple problems with this. First, Deshaun Watson doesn't want to be back in the fold. He was just paid last September. He signed a four-year, $100 million-plus contract extension. And by January, prior to all of the allegations in civil court for sexual assault and harassment, um, prior to all of that, wanted out because of the structure of the franchise. I don't know how you extend Deshaun Watson and make him happy at this point when he's going to get $10 million either way uh, if he plays or if, he, if the Texans decide to sit him. They're in a bad spot there with trying to convince him to show up and play. On top of that, he quit on the team. He signed the agreement and months later demanded to be traded. Number three, he's got all these legal issues hanging over him, and he's the face of the franchise doing that, the guy you just invested in, who now represents everything about you. They have a new general manager in Nick Casario. They have a new head coach in David Culley. And they have Cal McNair, who's taking over and running the franchise. I don't know how you send any other message than you're weak and you're a beta if you go and play this guy, given those three circumstances. That's the vibe and that's the mentality that you would give off as a franchise. That's what McLean would tell you. That's what I have said on this show. And if they go back and say, well, Watson's really good, so we're going to play him, that's easily done by playing the guy and he did report but he doesn't want to be there so there's two sides to this he's got to be wanting to play as well to me that's the biggest hurdle and meanwhile they're preparing to rod taylor to get the start he's the number one even if if watson's there and he hasn't been there in a little while um if watson when, when watson showed up for camp they were still using taylor as the number one quarterback uh, this sends all the wrong messages for the franchise, and they will be, and deservedly so, lit up if they end up playing him. To me, this is posturing because they're still trying to trade him. How had they not already traded him? That, that's, this is what keeps jumping out to me, Hud, because everything you just said I completely agree with, but how is it not already done? You have to get this guy away from your organization. It's, it's that simple, and there are plenty of teams quarterback desperate enough to take a flyer on Deshaun Watson even when they don't know his eligibility status for the upcoming season because of all the legal problems surrounding Deshaun Watson. Pull the trigger already. I mean, I, I don't know if we're down to, well, we're looking at the back end of this deal with a third or fourth round. Or, if it's that close, go ahead and make something happen. I, I just don't get how he's still there. Uh, with all of this going on, I, you know, there were the, the reports about them talking with Philadelphia about a trade for Deshaun. Whoever the team is, whoever the trade partner is, make it happen. This has to be priority number one for the Houston Texans. Get rid of Deshaun Watson via trade. Get something in return. Move on from the Deshaun Watson era and be done with it. Got to happen soon, right? Yeah, but I, I also don't think it's that easy. Um, 
And it's because a team would be trading for Deshaun Watson and they don't know his circumstances. He, he could go, and chances are he's not going to go on the commissioner's exempt list this season at least. Because the NFL has already said they have not been privy to the information from the police or from any of the accusers in the sexual misconduct in civil court. They don't have access to that information, or at least that's what they've said. Same goes for the Houston Texans. They haven't been privy to that information. That's why they're not going to rule if they're going to suspend him this season or not. But if, if, if hypothetically he goes on the commissioner's exempt list, there is no timetable for that. And if he goes on the exempt list, chances are, and I would say 99% of this, chances are he would not come off the exempt list until things are settled with everything going on with the 22 uh, cases that have been filed in civil court. That's problematic for a team that's willing to trade for him but also knows that you're paying him $10 million because if he goes on the exempt list, that money is still guaranteed. That's with pay. That's not without pay. Um, that on top of the fact that you would be trading for a guy, you don't want to pay a steep price because you don't know what happens in the offseason when we're all likely to see this go to the grand jury because he's not going to settle out, out of court. He has maintained his innocence. And if he's maintaining his innocence, he's not going to settle between now and January. So this is going to go into the offseason, which offers more litigation and more distraction and more uncertainty. So if you're a team willing to trade for him, what are you really willing to part ways with in order to get a quarterback that you're not sure is ever actually going to take a snap for you? And also, what's the NFL doing? They've made disciplinary decisions based on less evidence before in the past. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Texans and want. They, they want a ruling on Deshaun Watson one way or the other so they can move on and he's not a part of the team and it can help them negotiate in a trade with someone else if there's some knowledge about, at least in the short term, what his eligibility looks like. It could change based on, I think you said the 22 cases, but now 10 of those have been filed in criminal court also. So a lot of this could change based so on they could what get more we find out there. Information, right? sure. So it could be worse, but at least issuing an initial suspension or initial discipline in some way would, I think, go a long way towards speeding up the process of making a deal happen. Well, they can't just sit around and do nothing. They have to make a determination. Right now, they're moving forward with Terod Taylor. To me, you, you float something out there like you're about to play him um, because you're trying to trade him. But what's lost in this story is we have to go back prior to the civil cases being filed and the vibe that Watson was giving off. The last time he spoke to the media was right after they lost to the Tennessee Titans in Houston in week 17 last year. And then he wants out because he doesn't like the structure of the organization. He reported so he would not get fined. And now the Texans refuse to answer questions as to why he's not showing up to practice uh, because nothing has changed in his situation. And the NFL, apparently, they're not going to bail out the Texans on making a ruling or determination for his status for 2021. He's eligible to play, he's eligible to practice, and their star quarterback, who they extended at a four-year agreement with last September, uh, staunchly has said he's not going to be a part of the organization. I don't know how you just turn the football and the offense back over to him uh, with everything that's gone on this offseason, all the change internally with the front office, with the head coach, uh, with the recent change in, in ownership, and the message that would send to the fan base, to the league, uh, to, your, to your locker room, to just turn around and say, Deshaun Watson's our quarterback, he's our guy, he's our leader because it's the exact opposite uh, from every other angle as you approach this story. 
Coming up, the Tennessee Power Hour, we're going to get into a lot of things. We've got the Grand Prix, which was a huge success downtown. There's some things we're going to discuss with the logistics of this. But, but overall, in Nashville, another huge event uh, that will be returning for years to come. Uh, we have thoughts. Chad was in attendance downtown for this. I watched it uh, live on NBC Sports Network. We'll give our thoughts there. Also, live from Titans training camp with, with Paul Koharski, we talked Tennessee Vols as well and the perception and the initial reaction we have to Josh Heupel as head coach of the Vols. One week down, big week ahead for Tennessee football as they try to narrow down their quarterback race.